you want to get the latest news about our podcast, including upcoming episodes, exclusive content, and live events, visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. I've been sort of advocating for a nutritional label for news now for a couple of years, where every story would have data that's sort of transparent, that says, this is where the information came from. These are the people who touched this story in some way. This is the truthiness, and this is the verification. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media. As a special treat, we've invited uh, an old friend of ours back to the podcast, Amy Webb. If you don't know Amy, she is the founder of the Future Today Institute, which recently released its 11th annual Tech Trends Report, identifying 235 advancements in emerging technologies across a number of fields, including mass media and journalism. Welcome back to the podcast, Amy. Thank you. I love this podcast. I think it's terrific. I'm happy to be back. Well, good. I'm glad. It's been a long time. I actually, I, I always love hearing you talk. I love listening to your mind, uh, the way it works. I was one of the people who sat in rapt attention at the ONA conference last uh, last year when you delivered your annual sort of assessment of where journalism was headed. And uh, let's just say you scared a lot of people in that room, or at least you got them thinking about technology in a different way. Yeah, I I know. It was a lot of years. So first of all, this was the 10th anniversary of that talk. Yeah. And in previous years, I've brought robots and flown drones indoors and, uh, you know, it's been a bit more upbeat. However, you're a real strong woman. <laughs> I have. You know, we're sort of quickly approaching this inflection point and I I might even argue that we've already we've already reached it. And the challenge is that you know, we've got misinformation being created by bad actors. We've got misinformation unintentionally being created by otherwise well-intentioned humans. We have the proliferation of new types of technology, which make it easier to create and disseminate information. We are currently in the middle of what is now the third era of computing, which is artificial intelligence. And, you know, that ecosystem has not yet matured, but we are quickly approaching some, you know, interesting junctures where how we receive information, decisions that are being made on our behalf, like a lot of things are starting to change. And so with all of that in mind, I thought that it was incredibly important, not just to show everybody at ONA, you know, what the most important trends are going forward for them in the in the coming year, but to think differently and much more critically about where the industry was headed. So for the first time ever last year, I released two reports. One of them was a specific report of emerging tech trends just for journalists. There were like 75 of them. And the other report was a survey that we had done over the summer, which we're going to repeat again this year, asking newsroom executives, reporters, producers, you know, everybody who works in news, how they think about the future. And there was no way to sugarcoat it. The results were pretty sobering. And so, yeah, I mean, last year was, I kicked off that talk with, uh, with REM 
and uh, it's the end of the world as we know it, you know, and I hope that that, (laughs) I hope the message came across loud and clear. It's, I wanted people to leave there feeling pretty shaken up. And as far as I know, at 11 o'clock in the morning, a lot of people went to the bar and drink after that session. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all kind of realized that we were in the dystopia that we were afraid that we might actually be in and actually looking months and years down the road, realizing this is going to be really kind of tough for us. There's some challenges ahead that our industry has to face. I think that everybody, everybody who deals with technology in their life and their daily life is going to have to sort of reckon with. I mean, just some of the thoughts that you had just about AI and uh, the interaction between voice and, and technology, how, how we can see that beginning to, to change at this moment with products like Alexa and how comfortable people are getting with, you know, making, having, having technology make a lot of decisions that we used to, you know, fret over as just, Hey, this, this is just the way things are going to be from now on. And with the ease with which so much of this technology is happening, I think, you know, just calling attention to it and say, Hey, look, this is what could happen very quickly if we don't really pay attention. I I think that was kind of the, yeah, I mean, that's sort of a nice way of the message that you were sort of delivering. But there was like this interesting moment. So I, I rigged my computer so that I can live tweet while I'm talking. Uh-oh. And the reason that I do that is because, you know, I go through an enormous amount of information in a very short amount of time. And so on the back end, I tweet out while I'm speaking, you know, additional resources and links. Sort of, It's sort of like a, a way to hyperlink my talk, yeah. right? So... What was so fascinating was that there were folks from Twitter who were in the audience, and I had just been talking about how Twitter was the cause of a lot of problems, right, over the past year, and that, you know, one different way of thinking. Anyhow, so the whole setup was like, Twitter is part of the problem. This this claim by all of the different social networks that they can't, you know, they can't control their own ecosystem. They don't understand how the algorithms work or whatever the line is for these five minutes. We're just the tech, right? Right. We're just the platform, right? That everybody's favorite refrain. So I was making a counter argument and explaining how an alternate way to think about these systems, you know, that Twitter could become a news service for the 21st century. What's fascinating is Twitter, the folks who work at Twitter who were in the audience took what I said out of context, literally took what I tweeted and appended it. Um, so, and then sent out tweets saying that I said that Twitter is the news wire of the 21st century, which is actually <laughs> not what I said. Right. So, no. but I mean, to me, that's really representative of where we've arrived. And I just feel like, I don't know, I, you, were you by any chance working in newspapers like in the nineties? Yes. Okay. So yeah, I know. Yeah. So like, but, but like, if you th- well, okay. So, but think back to the nineties. So the, the eighties, the 1980s way back in the way back, that's when the suburban edition model started to launch. And this is where right. like, I'm from Chicago. So the Chicago Tribune, you know, and the, what used to be called the Hammond times had all of these sort of smaller micro editions that, that would go out to different local communities. Do you think I'm describing that the right way? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the post did something similar and they were all of, I forget what the the surrounding newspapers were called that, that fed into the post system. But yeah, that, that's what a lot of people do. were trying to do to sort of, you know, to localize, to reach those, those, uh, to get away from this idea that they were just a, an urban model. They were actually trying to 
parse stuff into uh, the neighborhoods, as it were. Okay, so yes. And on the one hand, a lot of people saw that as a radically different business model that could sustain the future of news. But if you stop and think about it, what predated that? Well, what predated that was at some point in the D.C. area and in Chicagoland, right, there were a bunch of small local news organizations. Right. And over time, conglomerates, you know, th there was consolidation. And so rather than there being 10 different neighborhood sources of news, there was just the Chicago Sun-Times, the Chicago Tribune, and the Hammond Times, right? You know, and that was it. And so that clearly wasn't serving all of the different audiences. So what did they do? Well, they kept that same corporate umbrella, but then segmented back out to what it used to be. And now in 2018, there, you know, there's all this consolidation again. Um, the, the key difference this time around is that we have these platforms. And so there's a lot addition, there's a lot more competition than there used to be. But anyhow, I'm, the reason that I bring this up is one of the key points that I made is that, you know, there just hasn't been a lot of radically different or new thinking around how to sustain the business side of news. And that, you know, the, the publication and the broadcasting of journalism is inextricably tied to technology. You have to think about both. At the same time, and I sense ONA have gotten into a few arguments, you know, on Twitter in a very public space, you know, trying to, to sort of help people understand that your local publication launching some events is not a radically different model for news or, or like a different kind of subscription model that just tweaks what's already, you know, been there, you know, in an age of AI where autonomous decision making is going to replace a lot of humans in the loop, like that kind of thinking doesn't, doesn't work. No. And actually it's funny because you say this and, and I read through your report report over the last couple of days and it got me thinking again about this, that, you know, especially the, the lessons that, that everybody was trying to learn or trying to figure out over the last year and a half, maybe too late. And then getting into what you talked about at ONA, this idea, I mean, it almost seems like the thinking about, technology in newsrooms has been so naive, I think, that would somehow, that you're like, yeah, yeah, we need to have all these radical new ideas and everything. But really, in a way, we were kind of recreate these old models. Maybe that's what you're talking about. And that the thing that I took away from your speech and the thing that I took away from the new report that came out is, is we just really, at a very basic level, need to re rethink how technology really, really is changing the way we communicate and we interact. And there are things, uh, maybe there's this sort of sense that if we talked about it and we sort of, you know, we, we, we had a social media editor, we did, we did this thing digitally, we created this sort of product that, that we would sort of be in front of it and that we control it. But if nothing else, I think we saw with the way you, you mentioned Twitter, <laughs> the people in the audience, I'm sure that the people in the audience who are from Facebook were, were just sort of glad to be left out of that conversation. But seeing how bots and technology and social media and Twitter and, and, and Facebook and all this stuff that was going on behind the scenes that people never even realized, that newsrooms didn't even realize, you know, how many things just happen automatically and this idea that there are bad actors out there who don't care about the truth and are more interested in leveraging using information as a weapon and less as a as a means to to educate people and to bring people together you know those types of things 
suddenly that this the digital technology isn't this necessarily this hey this is this great freeing thing for for newsrooms it's it's something that could be potentially used against newsrooms you know against readers in in a way i don't know maybe that's i'm ramping up the paranoia maybe, <laughs> maybe. no no i mean i think you're right to be concerned but here's what i would say <laughs> i think the core problem has always been that the incredibly hardworking smart talented people who become journalists, you know, are very, very good at a narrow skill set. Now, within that narrow skill set, yeah. you know, it's pretty broad, right? But but I'm I'm what I'm saying here is the people who are exceptional at reporting, at editing, at producing, at knowing what a story is, at knowing how to tell that story, knowing how to interrogate that work to make sure that the story is truthful and accurate and represents what is truthful and accurate, you know, and that moves people yeah. and makes, you know, all of those skills that are, I would argue, unique to people who have honed their skills as journalists, you know, in a sense, what winds up happening is that when you get very, very good, you miss signals emanating from other places. And yeah. that's not just specific to people working within news. Now, the problem is, you know, over the past four decades, when there have been these initiatives to try to figure out the future of news, the future of technology for news, you know, whatever it may be, oftentimes the genesis of those new ideas is starting from a place that folks have always started from, which is content. Right. Right. And the challenge is that that may have still serviced the industry well until the mid 90s. But, you know, once the Internet became a, a reality, you know, and information wasn't necessarily scarce anymore. You know, the, the problem is how many different times can you go back and reinvent that same wheel? Right. Yeah. That same. Con you know, so maybe it you know, these interactive projects may feel very different or, you know, this tweak to a subscription model may feel very different, whatever it might be, but it's still content. And the other piece of the, so on the one hand, you, the problem is regardless of what industry you're in, it's really, really hard to see the future when you are myopic and sort of paying attention to just one thing, but it's a totally common practice to pay attention to just the thing that you do, right? That's every, that's everybody. Um, but the other challenge is that, you know, when, when the, can I say shit on the podcast? You just did. Okay. So when the shit hits the fan, when the shit hits the fan and you're under duress, You right? can say it once. Okay. You don't have to keep I can saying say it. Once. Well, I just said it twice, <laughs> but when you get, when you get to that, when you get to that point and the stuff hits the fan, the problem is that you know, the lizard brain takes over and you start looking outside or you've got hot, you know, you've got aggressive investors and you wind up with Michael Farrow. That's what I'm trying to say. You wind up with Michael Farrow, you know, taking a majority stake in the Tribune company, turning it into something called Trunk and, you know, promising everybody that these mysterious AI patents are somehow going to save the day. And this is somebody who came in with no media expertise who's, you know, who, who surrounded himself with people who also, you know, have expertise in one vertical, but don't have, you know, the experience or understanding of what it takes to work in a newsroom. And so that, that's not good either. And I guess the third piece of this is I know a ton of incredibly smart, technically capable 
people who who work in newsrooms, the problem is that there's not enough people working anymore. So all of the time and the money and the effort required and the resources required to do serious R&D, right? Serious prototyping, hypothesizing, you know, all of the stuff that would go into coming up with radically different ways to use technology or leverage technology, different types of platforms, you know, coming up with those radically different business models, they, they don't have the time to do that. So this is kind of like this big monster. And, you know, to me, that underpins everything else. That to me is, is sort of the, that has more gravitational pull than basically anything else at this point. And you know, the good news, I think the uplifting piece is that that's also the easiest thing to fix. You know, is there a way to give the very smart people working within news organizations some space so that they can, in a methodical, meaningful way, start thinking more critically about the next, not two years, but like the next 10 years of news and reverse engineer back to the present, you know, some durable, some like some ways to make some real change? And is there a way to partner those people with others who care deeply about the news ecosystem, but who themselves are not journalists, right? But we don't outsource it to them. We partner with them in new ways. So really this is, to me, this is a a problem that can be maybe not resolved in the short term, but we can approach that problem with a new set of eyes, but it's going to require widespread coordination across the industry. It's going to require some investment, you know, and it's going to, and we need to give everybody a little breathing room. And at the moment, the more consolidation that occurs, the, you know, the more expectations there are for profit margins, the harder it is to sustain. So it's going to do something to, yeah. Yeah. No, it's the thing that's been spinning around for decades is, you know, what is the business model that's going to sustain journalism? And for the longest time, it was this idea that, well, we needed to sort of recreate these old models that we had. And then it was like, well, no, we we need to create something that's going to exist in this, this new, you know, ecosphere uh, of, uh, of digital technology, digital journalism. And then, then on the other hand, you know, you know, I'm glad that you talked about the fact that there are a lot of people who are go- doing good journalism. There are a lot of people who work very smart and are working very hard. And, and, and But quite often, a lot of these, these initiatives that they do are journalism you know, initiatives. That, you know, we're going to go out and report this a different way. We're going to do this. But it, it's not necessarily speaking to the long-term sustainability or even just addressing the things like you know, doing deep dives into data and the way that people manipulate data data and having an understanding. I'm trying to remember the thing that you had in the report. About. Right. But that was one. Of, so that was one of the sort of sobering findings from the yeah. uh, global survey, you know, was that overwhelmingly the people who are in the age group that are the managers, right? The people who are managers of news organizations, those are the ones who tend to think in the shortest time frame, right? Yeah. And I understand why it's because, you know, it's like day-to-day operations, you know, it's, it's hard enough to just feed the beast and get the publication or the show out, which I totally understand. But somebody at a senior level of management or preferably many people need to incorporate foresight and futures thinking and strategy into their daily operations. Otherwise we're just like spinning this wheel over and over and over again. And worse, you know, it's like we're a hamster in a cage and there's somebody else is like owns the cage. There's no way to get out. Right. So, so do you think, I mean, 
on the one hand, you're, you're sort of talking against the idea of con consolidation, but then you look at some some place like, you know, the Washington Post, where they're doing all this innovative digital journalism, and, and they're able to do it mostly or probably only because they have a, a billionaire that's funding them and has given them that degree of freedom. And not a lot of newsrooms are in the in that sort of position uh, right. to be able to do that. They yeah, don't have a billionaire I mean, <laughs> funding them. That's right, for now, right? right? So that's like a tale of two billionaires. On the one hand, you've got Bezos, right, on the Post. And on the other hand, you've got Michael Farrow. Now, coming into this, those two organizations are pretty different. So what is now called Trunk, you know, is is a amalgamation of like many, many different news organizations all over the country, right? And the Post is really just the, right? It's just the right. Post. Yeah. Right. So to some extent, that is a completely different, like to start with, those are totally different kinds of companies. My hunch is that Bezos did not buy the Washington Post because he wants to be some kind of media impresario. You know, I don't know what the end game was, but what I do know is that of all the people that I know of and that I know, Jeff Bezos is the among the most elite long-term thinkers that is currently alive on the planet. Yeah. And I think that his bigger picture strategic approach and his ethos and his mantra, right, which is to be strong on vision and flexible on the, on the details is a fundamentally different kind of thinking. And as a result of that, you know, you, you see, sweeping changes in our daily lives that are attributable to the strategic thinking coming out of, you know, Amazon right now. Yeah. who would have, If you were to go back in time 20 years ago and tell that version of yourself that this is where we would be there, you know, you wouldn't believe what you were telling yourself, you know, yeah. but to me that represents, you know, a different way of thinking. And if you look at some of what's happening with the post, you know, they're developing tools and, and, uh, syndication tools, publication tools, and different types of technology, which they are white labeling. So, so that's a really interesting model that helps them with sustainability. It also helps that Bezos promised them a runway and that, you know, they, they were going to have some time to explore and to get things right. Now, yeah, well, what does that mean in the long term? Are there ulterior motives? You know, I don't know. My observation of Bezos has been that he's not interested in running brands into the ground and that above all else, public trust is paramount. Right? Yeah. So there's a model that works. You know, the Michael Farrow model didn't work. You know, the trip, the trip just went through a massive layoff. I live in the city of Baltimore, the great city of Baltimore with a newspaper, the Baltimore sun, you know, that at this moment in time could definitely use more people that could, that could use yeah. more reporters and there's, there's no budget for them. You know, they're doing what they can, but, you know. In environments like this, they say that, you know, disruption, you know, environments where there's a lot of fluidity, this is, these are opportunities. What, what opportunities are out there, do you think, for newsrooms? Or, or, or is that sort of what you've been already talking about? I mean, that's what I've been talking about. And I, I know that oftentimes I sound like I'm sort of doom and gloom all the time and all of life is a horrible dystopia that we're all forced to live in. So I know that that's. <laughs> But at, at my core, I am an optimist. Well, yeah. Uh, and, I, and I do believe that we have the ability to create futures that we want. And I believe that I can, I can do something to, to help create some positive change, right? So right. 
you know, my feeling is that if you look at the, the copious amounts of information that are now available, you know, on the one hand, you could see that as competition and big challenge. On the other hand, you know, if journalists can get their act together and if newsrooms can come up with a way, which I've now proposed and published and written about many, many, many times to gain trust, then this is a time for our newsrooms to shine, right? So one of the things that I've been talking about now for, I think I mentioned this for the first time at ONA in 2015, was a new way to verify content created by journalists within trusted news organizations. I talked about it again and talked about how blockchain could be applied to make that happen in 2016 at ONA. And I think the key here is developing a spectrum so that we define maybe not just the news organization, but the credibility of the news story itself. And there are ways to use machine learning and there are generative algorithms. There's, there are lots of different ways and techniques that ex that currently exist that would allow you to ask a machine to sort of do a read through of a story or a video, and then assuming that it the system hadn't been hacked, right? There had been right. no adversarial content introduced without a human's knowledge. But assuming that the system worked, it could get like get a grade at the end, right? So this is you know, hundred percent verified. The veracity uh, of the story is yeah. 85%. Right, it's trustworthy. And yeah. you could do that while still having an opinion. So I'll just give you an example. Breitbart, which, you know, oftentimes publishes like completely misleading information, occasionally publishes content that is truthful and accurate. Now it may rub against your political opinions, you know, but occasionally there is trustworthy content on their site. You know, conversely, you know, MSNBC you know, is very, very left-leaning. And so a lot of people with different political ideologies will immediately complain that that content is incorrect. However, you know, it's factually correct. It just, again, butts up against your, your right. political leanings. So there is a way to use technology to say, the story is accurate, it's been verified, and it's conservative, or it's liberal, right? right? There are ways to automate and do that. And I've been explaining to newsrooms and to whomever and at ONA that this is a way forward for several years, but this is not the kind of thing that just a news organization can start doing on its own. It's going to require that everybody decides that this is in our best interest and it's the best thing for our, you know, our public and our democracy. And so, you know, we're all going to sort of organize and make that work. Is this this thing that you in your report that you're talking about uh, radical transparency? Yeah, so that that was in the report. I've also written for Mother Jones about this. I've, I mean, it's been all over the place. So, you know, and there are different ways to do it. You can apply the blockchain for verification, and then you know, develop a different system to so blockchain for verification that it comes from the place that, that right. we say it's coming from, and that that's ver verification. And then you know, a sort of truthiness or, you know, truth checking, fact checking, which is more than just, did they get the numbers right? But is this being taken out of context? Right. Right. There's a way to also accomplish that. And so every story could have, you know, I was, I've been sort of advocating for a nutritional label for news now for a couple of years where every story would have data that's sort of transparent that says, this is where the information came from. These are the people who touched this story in some way this is the truthiness and this is the verification, right? 
And that's something yeah. that you could you could automate as opposed to Absolutely. like like a fact checking you know part of a a website or a, or a newspaper that they actually rather than have people like going and digging in the information that you would be able to automate this so that it's something that we'd be able to do very quickly. That's right. That's right. And I think that that would you know the faster that we can approach radical transparency within news and make that freely available to the public, you know, the better off we're all going to be. And I think the harder it's going to be to just sort of in a reactionary way, yell fake news. Yeah. But, but if we stop and think about it for five seconds, you know, the process of doing all of that creates a lot of data. So there's also a possibility on the back end to monetize some of that. Now I know that that sounds like a horrific entanglement of church and state, but bear with me. You know, there's something called differential privacy, which is a way of anonymizing the data attached, you know, and so it could also be interesting to sort of like in the process of creating all of that transparency, you wind up with a lot of data. And my hunch is that you could then do, you could learn a lot from all of that data and that somebody might be willing to pay for the privilege of learning from the data, right? And maybe that's a marketer, maybe that's an activist, or maybe that's a school teacher. I don't know. As long as that process was also transparent, which is the opposite of what happened with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, right? right? Then I think that there's an opportunity to develop some profit centers and possibly even some profit sharing that everybody within the news ecosystem could then, you know, exploit in a very, you know, good and meaningful way. Yeah. But so when I'm talking about like radically different ways of thinking, like, you know, oh, no. that's what I'm talking about. No, no, no. Because once you start down this thing, you mentioned that, oh, yeah, then on the back end, you could you could sort of uh, leverage that data for, you know, monetarily. I mean, then pe people start, you know, their, their ethical bells ring. But I think if you start thinking in a different way, because the service that you're providing, and, and I think it's a service that, that people are hungry for, you know, I, it's clear that, that people are having difficulty understanding or feeling, you know, that they, they know what is a trustful news source. Even for a, a source that they they're politically aligned with, I think people still have a, a hinky feeling about. And if there were a way for us to sort of leverage the sort of radical t transparency that you're talking about, I think it would be a huge boon for the consumer and for the newsrooms as well. Because, you know, I think places like Breitbart would like to have, you know, some third party say, you know, give them a good grade for when they do their job right. Absolutely, because that would, you know, all that's going to do is bring more traffic. Right. So right. if you stop and think about it, the good um, housekeeping seal or something. Well, <laughs> but I mean, but right now, to me, this is analogous to any exclusionary practice. It may make you feel better, but ultimately you're leaving money on the table, right? Yeah. Or you're leaving opportunity on the table. So, you know, Breitbart or MSNBC, right? They've each cornered a area of the market but they're also leaving on the table tons of other readers who for many reasons may want to engage with that content. Right. Right. And, and just think about it from this, like, like a very basic, you know, humanistic level. People want to feel something we want to feel, or maybe, I don't know, maybe three years from now, we're going to be so tired of all of our feelings. We may not want there's, to feel. There's no anymore. feeling. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm about <laughs> done with feeling, I think, but go but, on. Well, but I mean, why do people res why does Breitbart resonate? Because it's a lot of the content is very salacious and it gets you angry, right? It, why has the NRA, you know, created all of this content that is so incendiary and so 
you know, sort of strikes of paranoia, it's because it makes people feel something, right? So think, it makes I them think, share something. It makes them continue well, yeah, to spread the message. But, right. So I think people, you know, your typical MSNBC viewer or reader is probably avoiding Breitbart because they just, you know, dismiss it outright. However, if there was a Breitbart story that had the blockchain verification and the trust symbol and the truthiness symbol and the transparency, you know, that nutritional label, right, for yeah. news that I've been talking about forever, they may be willing to engage not with all Breitbart content, but they may be willing to engage with that particular story. And is that going to cure all of the political polarization we we see? No, but at least it might help us all have a more thoughtful I don't know, thoughtful conversation about things. And more to the point, it may, you know, get us to stop instinctively and reactively, you know, hashtag fake news, saying hashtag yeah. fake news every time we're confronted with something. It's going to be harder and harder to say that if at the end of the day, we've, we're staring at a nutritional label that says, you know, this is where everything, this is how the sausage got made. Yeah. I think it has a, has a good journalistic ideal behind it. I think it also has a, a, a good societal good behind it as well. But also just from a business sense, I mean, what you were talking about before, this idea that, you know, if we divide the audience up into right and left and, you know, 50-50 either way, I mean, you, you've halved your potential, you know, audience that you're going to appeal to. If you That's realize right. that there's maybe a 10% a on either way that can slide one way or the other who are interested in your content, but for whatever reason are, are sort of barred from it, if you're able to tap into those, you know, those middle ground people, I mean, that's, that's a boon for you. Readership, but also potential customers, whatever your, your model is. So, you know, I don't think you, you said before that you, you come off doom and gloom. I, I don't think so. I don't think you, you do come off that way. I think you're, you're looking ahead into the future and, and being realistic about some of these hard choices that we're going to have to make. So <laughs> you, I would, I would say I'm a pragmatist, but yes. you know, yeah, I, yeah. one of our flaws, one of our flaws as humans is that we are biologically limited by our own brains. Now, Humans have pretty good brains. However, one of the challenges that we have is that our brains are constantly trying to save energy. And in order to do that, our brains are constantly looking for patterns. And, you know, without our direct order or influence or asking or even knowledge sometimes, we are constantly sorting all of the data inputs from our lives into patterns. And those patterns, you know, are sort of the amino acids the building blocks for how we interpret the world around us. And I bring that yeah. up because it is, I think, unfortunate that, and I would blame a lot of this on social media, I think it's unfortunate that we aren't taking a, a secondary step and applying some critical thinking to all of those patterns. I think we, we're developing these sort of new neural pathways where we're quick to make snap decisions about things which may not be representative of the truth. And as much as journalists, you know, like to blame everybody else for doing this, I see a lot of that same behavior among the journalists themselves. Do you remember when that whole thing with the national parks, one of the national and parks, either contractor or staff member went rogue, remember? And yeah. Like was yeah, yeah. Right. So shortly after that happened, I saw three people who are prominent journalists all share the same story on Facebook. 
And that story had to do with like a friend of mine who works at the EPA just, you know, in the wake of what just happened. And then they start like they, they all three of them posted the exact same content on Facebook as though it was a personal friend of theirs from the EPA. Right. Like it, it was all fake. It was, the whole thing was made up and they got duped. And you have to stop and ask yourself, well, how did this happen? So somehow your brain, the pattern recognition part of your brain got shut off where previously you would have said to yourself, now, wait a minute, is this, I need to apply my skeptical eye, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, like that part got shut off. The part where you would interrogate, you know, the source or try to get a second source or, you know, a primary source, right, to verify before sharing that information out, that part of the brain got got shut off. And instead, you know, there was a new pattern. The new pattern was, holy cow, I can't believe this. This validates my political views. I'm going to post it. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I don't have a totally dystopian viewpoint on the future. I am absolutely not one of those people who believes that every nothing is bad as we think it is and everything's going to be great in the, in the best of all possible worlds, right? Candide. You know, I'm a realist and right. I'm a parent. I'm a mom and I've got a kid and I want her to live in a world where there is opportunity, you know, and people are generally, you know, happy. That's yeah. what I want. My concern is that we may be stealing that future away from the next generation without realizing that that's what we're doing in the present. These things happen. We take these actions. We, we never think about the consequences. It's just so easy to just spread the misinformation and bad news. I mean, you know, just as human beings, not just as journalists, but human beings, we have to, we have to think better. We have to be better for the very reason that you said for, for future generations, these little, these little things that seem to make no difference actually exponentially as we've seen is, is these memes grow and grow can have a huge effect in, in our little piece in it or a little bit That's of responsibility. That's right. And so that's why I keep coming back to this, you know, like Americans to start with our nowists. But like <laughs> if we if we don't come up with a way to give our journalists, the, the newsroom managers some breathing room, but also give them some kind of framework to work on the future, it's just not going to happen in a meaningful way. A friend of mine is a, a Zen Buddhist monk in Japan. And he's at this amazingly beautiful temple in Kyoto called Shokuin-ji, uh, which is a beautiful old temple. And I was there with him over the summer and he was showing me the roof and he said, we just repaired the roof. Right. And I'm looking up at this thing like, okay, congrats. Arrogant American. <laughs> yeah. He, go, he goes, that piece of wood comes from a t particular type of tree. It's bamboo. And it takes 70 years to harden. And I said, okay. And he goes, so 70 years ago, a different monk at this temple harvested that tree and prepared it and did all, you know, went through all of the different steps to prepare that tree so that it could sit and harden for 70 years. And I said, okay. And he <laughs> goes, but hundreds of years before that, the monks at this temple knew that they needed to prepare for a day in which this roof would need to be fixed. So they planted those trees. So the moral of the story is hundreds of years ago, the monks in that temple knew 
that they needed to make preparations for the future. And so they put in an extraordinary amount of labor and time and money and effort into building something that they would never see. You know, their children, their children's children, right, in in their lifetimes would never see. But they were putting in all of that effort for the future of, you know, their temple, but also for Zen Buddhism and also for, you know, future humans. That attitude, so I'm listening to this staring up at this piece of wood, you know, and suddenly this it dawns on me, right? Like there is no analogy to that story anywhere in news, anywhere in journalism. You know, I can't really think of anywhere in America where that's analogous because we don't do that kind of long-term thinking that is a selfless act that requires us to give in and give up of our own time and our own energy and our own effort, knowing that we are never going to see any kind of return back to us directly. That's a selfless act. And I'm not saying that we need to think about the next 400 years of journalism, but the current generation of managers absolutely should be thinking about the next generation of managers 30 years from now. Assuming that that there, <laughs> assuming there will be, but we can, we have to hope that there there will be in thirty years. I'm not going to add any other comment to that. Amy, thank you for coming on the podcast. This has been great. Absolutely, thanks. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. It takes a lot of people to produce an episode of It's All Journalism. This week's episode was produced by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA. The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.